millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chelsea, Everton, Palace, and West Ham race into the quarters, but for the Premier League's North London sides, the FA Cup weekend wasn't as profitable. Tottenham, upset at White Hart Lane, are out, while Arsenal are pushed to a replay by Hull. Midweek Champions League is on the horizon with City and Arsenal hoping to advance out of the round of 16. And that Premier League projection Kartik tease last weekend, we're going to dig deep on that in this week's show. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Lawrence McKenna is joining me from London for this first segment of the show. And Lawrence, did you know that this show that we're recording right now, it's our 40th podcast since we got the band back together? Really? Yeah, it's an anniversary of sorts. Oh, that's lovely. I didn't realize it was 40. Neither did I. I don't know what compelled me to sit down and actually count them before we started recording today, but I'm glad I did. Hey, Lawrence, happy 40th anniversary. Happy 40th, Richard. It's amazing when you have more podcasts than listeners. Shh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of a lack of a lack of a crowd, a lack of interest, FA Cup weekend, Lawrence. Um, oh, come on. Maybe that's a little bit harsh, but for us, I think we kind of look at these FA Cup weekends as a break from the Premier League, uh, time to rejuvenate it's a, a little bit. Work. It's a break yeah. from work, essentially, because it, it means that people don't want to consume in such a voracious way. I was playing football this morning with a load of other YouTubers. That's, that, that's internet speak for TV. And I, I turned to them and I was like, imagine if people just like football. It would make our jobs even more interesting. What do you because mean by that? Because then I could literally just go wherever I want and just go, hey guys, they played some football in Vietnam today. Do you want to see it? And people still go, yeah, yeah, cool. We've spent a lot of time, it seems like, over the last six months or so, really considering why people like certain leagues. Maybe we aren't addressing it in that way, but that's kind of the subtext of this whole, is the Premier League that good anymore, right? We're trying to figure out why people like certain things so much. and We just engage in constant, I think podcasts have become almost constant marketing podcasts. Because a lot of them are just looking for, you know, Nike or Adidas to find strands of he's a strong guy or he plays a good ball or he, he has good vision. Or, <laughs> and they're looking for things to, you know, wind things up. And there's been a couple of podcasts, uh, sorry, tie things together. There's been a couple of podcasts I find quite interesting is uh, obviously World, uh, World Soccer Talk does some really good ones. I'm really interested in Nate stuff. But what I did like was, you know, uh, the World Football Phone-In on Five Live. Mm-hmm. Mina Rizuki said something one week, which was along the lines of, basically and and i can't remember the other guy's name but uh, it might be tim vickery and he basically said and she said the same in different ages we look for different things in the 80s when they looked at an academy they're looking for young strong players Mm -hmm. with a certain kind of read of the game now in the academy they're looking for a different kind of player and you know maybe man city are setting that precedent as to what's trendy at that point Mm -hmm. i think the same happens in podcasts and it's basically what 
maybe what sells at that point. And I think that that comes through a lot in podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts where that is, you know, that's the main point right now. I think there are a few that sort of remain outside of that. But it, it's still an interesting idea is that we're just constantly remarketing things for people. Yeah, I, I, um, I was thinking about that a little bit today too and about what people want in podcasts now as compared to when we were first recording, what was that, six or seven years ago, probably mm. when you and I did our first shows together. And it seems yeah. like people now want a lot more humor in their podcasts. They want a lighter touch than when we first started. Um, we've always been very like heavily analytical on the show and now people seem to want you know a little bit of a lighter touch and they can get their heavy analysis elsewhere at least some people that's some of the feedback that we get and you know you've been exposed to my responses to this that's just not going to be us we're not going to come here and have we're not only funny have snazzy drops and stuff like that that's not going to be us we, we serve a different market but i wonder if people just are going to podcast for different things these days than they were six or seven years ago i think the premier league is like uh those sharks uh, and, you know, podcasts and other media people are like the little sharks that sort of mm-hmm. go underneath them, if that makes sense. Yeah, everybody can get their own little separate scrap. Of the skin of the Premier League. Oh, okay. Or the FA Cup, or the Champions League. And no one really listens to the League Cup, we know that. I guess we're going to test if people actually listen to the FA Cup, because we're going to talk about some of the results this weekend. This was, I believe it was the fifth round of the competition. Quarterfinals were drawn on sure. Sunday. Uh, Saturday, the big match was Arsenal and Hull. Both teams kind of rotated their first uh, choices a little bit. Ended up being nil-nil. Uh, Eldon Yakupovic got n- had nine saves for Hull, really salvaging a result there. It just seemed like this is the worst result for both sides, Lawrence. I and mean, both of these teams uh, either wanted to move on or just get out of the competition. Hull looking to get promoted. They're in first place in the championship. Arsenal looking at a lot of two-match weeks now that Champions League is back upon them. Instead, they're, they're going for a replay. I guess it's about reduction of uh, sort of workload, but at the same time, if you look at the players that played, apart from the back line, which also included Callum Chambers, by the way, mm-hmm. um, it, it, the rest of the team is, and maybe Flamini, it's a side who can rotate in and out. I don't think it's the damaging blow maybe Arsenal were worried about, but it's definitely a change in Wenger's philosophy for the FA Cup because they're still not a huge amount of youth in that side. No. Uh, you know, there's a couple of young players, but no one, you know, I mean, do you remember back 2005 when Wenger was fielding almost full youth teams? Yeah. Yeah. And that policy persisted probably for what, five or six years. And then there started to be kind of this push that we need to end this trophy drought. And now, even though like they did rotate a lot of players, I don't think Mesut also even dressed for this one. All of the players that were selected this week and are players that have played with the first team at one point in time during the season with the, uh, I think with the exception of Mohamed El Nenny. And that's just because he's been injured, uh, after exactly. he's come, come over. So it, it was a reasonably strong side and they brought in some of the first choice players off the bench as the game went on. And still they're going to have to, go back to Hull and have a replay. So probably not the best result for Arsenal. No. Really probably not the best result for Hull either. Uh, other games on Saturday, Watford got an own goal, one nothing victory over Leeds. Everton got second half goals from Ross Barkley and Romelu Lukaku, 2 nothing win at Bournemouth. West Bromwich Albion, 3-1 loss at Reading, conceding the last three goals of the match. And they played a full-strength team in that one, too. Albion, whether they whether they played to their full strength is another question. Yeah, and I guess that kind of leads me to talking about Tottenham versus Crystal Palace. This was a Sunday match. Crystal Palace, a one nothing victory at White Hart Lane. Crystal Palace on form, one of the worst teams in the Premier League right now. Opposite for Tottenham, they're one of the two best teams in the Premier League. Is it possible that Tottenham just shows that some players just can't get up for the FA Cup at this point? They have other priorities. A team like Tottenham, they're focused on the Premier League, are excited about Europa League, coming back off a trip from Italy in midweek. Just really hard to get back up for a game like this. 
Maybe, although they did, uh, they did create a lot of chances in the game. I, I do feel like uh, Spurs were unfortunate not to score at least a few in this match, actually. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you look at that back line, they have broken up uh, the, the normal pairings in there. I think, you know, we undervalue uh, how good a goalkeeper Larice is at times at organising his back line and how many good saves he's pulled off. You know, Vaughan was in there. But their fullbacks and the guys ahead of that still should have done better. I, I do put it down to, you know, the fact they were playing a side who are maybe focused more on a League Cup run. Yeah. If you look at, I find it quite interesting, there was a, a, a graphic from Sky Sports uh, talking about how many matches the teams have to play between now and the end of the season. And Man- uh, Manchester City have a maximum of 20 to play between now and the mm-hmm. end of the season. Arsenal, 24. Tottenham, 20. Uh, a maximum of 12 for Leicester. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it is, it's interesting to see, uh, you know, the, the way that these managers will... Uh, manage this workload and especially when we're talking about the size of squads um, and where things are going with that something interesting with palace i can't remember last time that alan pardew even had enough quality forwards to start two up top but he had wickham and adebayor starting up top today too so uh, maybe it's too brazen to dismiss this as oh this is one of the worst teams in the premier league right now and they got to win at white hard lane maybe palace also getting yon kabaye back for this game are able to shift into another gear now that they're starting to get some talent back in the squad. Good point. Um, and uh, not only that, but I mean, he was then able to bring on Miliernak and also uh, Balassi as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like he, he was short on talent for this game. Yeah. I think I do. I still consider uh, Crystal Palace to be fortunate. West Ham 5-1 winners at Blackburn, a match where both teams had a player sent off in the second half. And then what was the marquee match of the round really didn't develop as such because Manchester City pretty much rolled out an academy team for this game with a couple of exceptions. At Stamford Bridge, they lose 5-1. to one. Uh, This is an example of a team that's probably a little relieved to be out of the competition at this point. You mentioned Manchester City has all of these games coming up. Manuel Pellegrini wasn't happy that this game was scheduled for Sunday because he does play in Champions League this week in Ukraine against Dinamo Kiev. I can't imagine that there are very many Manchester City fans that are really that upset at being out of this competition. So weird the way that Manchester City have managed their PR over the last few weeks. Why the do you announcement, say that? I don't know, Rich. The, the, you know, the announcement, <laughs> obviously, from, um, from Guardiola. And mm-hmm. A lot of people sort of say, well, you know, what a weird time to announce. I do often wonder whether people announce things at a point for financial gain. I'm just wondering if there's some sort of public interest from City. It seemed um, like Manuel Pellegrini, one, just wanted some answers, wanted to get the answers out there. And two, he needs a job next year, too, probably. So he needs to get his name out in the market, too. Yes, but I suppose that works as well. I mean, either way, it, it doesn't seem like the smoothest of transitions, does it? And I imagine that if they do move on, uh, you know, when, when they do move on, uh, and they, if they do move on with no trophies there are going to be a lot of people looking around wondering why. Well, it probably puts next week's makes next weekend's match even more important league cup final against Liverpool. Yeah. Don't forget that folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quarterfinals were drawn on Sunday uh, for the FA cup. I think the big winner out of this draw is Reading. Reading the three, one winners over West Brom. They get crystal palace. They get crystal palace at home. They, you can argue that they might end up being favorites for that match uh, in the quarterfinals. Kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a paved road to Wembley because when you're a second tier side facing a premier, Premier League side, there's always going to be this element of, I don't, danger is the wrong word, but you're always going to be on talent, the underdog. But that was kind of a, a best case scenario for the Royals. I'm also looking at the idea of Shrewsbury West Ham. 
that could happen. Shrewsbury versus United is played on Monday uh, when you got most of you are going to be listening to this. And who knows, Manchester United, that result in Denmark uh, against the Shrewsbury team, relatively short turnaround and three days rest. I guess that's not that short of a turnaround, but Shrewsbury is near the bottom of the League One table. And I wouldn't be surprised if they at least force a replay here. Some, I mean, just some really good ways to transition managers out of the clubs recently. Oh, we'll talk about that in a moment, what you're alluding to there. But Shrewsbury, Manchester United winner is going to host West Ham. Arsenal Hall winner is going to host Watford. Chelsea versus Everton. This is That's going to be a good one. Everton at home against Chelsea, maybe a, maybe a decent draw for them to a chance to get back to Wembley. Semi-finals of this competition are played at Wembley, of course. Lawrence, I want to ask you something about the FA Cup that we've danced around a little bit. We haven't covered the FA Cup too much on this show but between Manuel Pellegrini's selection, Steve Bruce's selection, Arsene Wenger rotating some players, um, have we finally reached that tipping point where kind of the talk around the FA Cup that it's a diminishing competition in terms of prestige is actually manifesting in how teams are approaching the competition? I think we've been asking this question for a very long time. I think it also comes down to the dominance of other competitions. The, the whole know, idea I, of, of ditching replays and, stop, and no longer playing FA Cup matches on the weekend so teams uh, can... Act, can devote more attention to other competitions. That's also part of why the question I think is starting to start to reach so greater importance. I just think it's a question of balance in England and looking for what the best route forward is for the, all the leagues, not just the premier league. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the FA is sort of not clutching at straws, but it is looking for solutions to make them more powerful. And um, and one of them would be that they, I didn't, I mean, I wasn't aware of this. I didn't know why they wouldn't do it sooner or why they wouldn't try and take some sort of power away from the Premier League sooner. But uh, they were talking about redistributing the Champions League, a Champions League spot to the FA Cup. Now that definitely would be damaged by, uh, you know, a coefficient change because you couldn't have two Champions League spots uh, in the Premier League and then mm. one in the FA Cup. But it would definitely make a difference to the competition. And you know, in terms of marketing, in terms of all those different things. I think the the problem is they've sort of, this is after the horse is bolted almost. You know, it's got their name all over it along with Emirates. They've, they've, almost, they've almost caught up a bit too late. You know, you can't sell out to a free market league who is just, you know, the most vehement uh, marketing uh, bear moth you've ever seen mm-hmm. in sport. And, you know, one of the most aggressive sort of Thatcherite creations we've seen. And, expect it to go well and then when it doesn't go well sort of go well what do we do now it just doesn't work and so at this point we're sort of stuck with people kind of doing what most economy well you know maybe Mitt Romney would have done after the previous election which is just annex things so sort of like ah, cut the FA Cup off it doesn't matter cut the League Cup off it doesn't matter Hmm. oh we don't need replays you know it's not like the replays actually financially benefit blah 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 So they sort of make up these arguments either way. Either you want the romance of the couple, you don't want the romance of the couple. You want the romance of the couple, you want the money. Or, and they make it an either-or sort of thing. Yeah, I just don't feel like it's argued out in a very yeah. cerebral way. No, that makes sense to me. Rather than people just coming forth and saying, you know, for Premier League teams and then also for teams in the championship that are fighting to get back in the Premier League, the FA Cup's kind of a pain in the ass. Like, no, why don't people just come out and say that rather than kind of going, oh, the romance is dying and replays are dumb and money distribution. It could just be a bottom line. Schedule wise, this is kind of a pain in the ass. And But let's assess why the romance is dying. Don't just say romance is dying and that's therefore, true. 
you know, therefore let's let it die. That's you know, such a good point based on what you said, because the romance is probably dying for reasons that the FA Cup can't really control. They can't make the Premier League less popular. They can't stop the growth of Champions League. So anything that they do to try to re-inject the romance without addressing problems that they have no input on, it's probably not going to work. Yeah, so they can shape themselves around that to some extent um, and maybe look at what would make a cup competition more popular because you know a, cu- a cup competition in the league like this should be more popular, should be more marketable mm-hmm. and should be um, more visible because it is a really, it, it's such an interesting idea. You know, the big guy versus the small. There are some real truisms and tropes about the FA Cup which are there, keep getting brought up every round for a reason. You know, and it's not just narrative. It's not just these are things that make a real difference to people. And I wonder whether redistributing a Champions League place, something like that, to give it a real sort of right, we won this for a reason, um, would would change the way that we perceive the cup. I'm sure it would. I just don't even know if that's fair, though. Because why? In theory, you still you have could... to get through. You still have to get through people who are, mm-hmm. you know, just as cup strong as you are. In theory, I would think that. The Champions League spots from a federation would go to the teams that have proven themselves most worthy of those, that are going to have the best chance of competing at that higher level and representing the league well and uh, making that competition better. And I think it's very difficult to argue that the winner of the FA Cup has proven themselves a better team than one of the top four teams in the Premier League. Yeah, but then maybe we would have a restructuring of the actual cup competition itself as well. Yeah, maybe. So you'd sort of see, you'd see a difference in the way that we draw the FA Cup and, you yeah, know, or maybe, how Or maybe you do it. go to like two, like, um, you know, like the Copa Italia is two legs for most of the way. Maybe you yeah, do that starting exactly. at the quarterfinals in the FA exactly. Cup. And that's exactly. Like, so, yeah. so it completely changes the competition. That's true. Um, that does that would alleviate a lot of my concerns about it if there were just more games you had to win, basically. Yeah. So uh, look at your system and look at how it's structured. And I think the you know the FA is struggling with that right now because there are, there are a lot of people who are busy moving around them and they're not moving fast enough. Mm-hmm. Let's shift away from the FA Cup. Let's talk about some Premier League news. A couple of stories that we're going to gloss over because over the last couple of days, a recurring story has retaken center stage around the Premier League. Uh, the gloss over ones, Zlatan Ibrahimovic midweek drops a heavy hint that he might move to the Premier League soon. Maybe that's just... just said his... he felt good. I don't even know if that's a heavy hint. Huh. Yeah, maybe we're maybe we're, we're reading different things, but maybe it is also just people again this time of year spinning Zlatan's words and happens to be going up against an English team in Champions League. It makes for good headlines. Um, other headlines that are more speculation based, like the Zlatan headlines, Wayne Rooney. China, he's the latest person that's being linked with a move. If a Chinese team, Lawrence, really does offer Manchester United somewhere around 100 million euros for Wayne Rooney, yeah, you just you let him go. Uh, yeah, but then does Wayne want to go there? He should. He has that. signed a contract at the other end, doesn't he? He does, and you would you would assume that he would be able to get a couple more years at max, kind of this maximum pay rate. He's one of the best compensated players in the world wage rise you would assume moving to china would help him extend those kind of wages deeper into his career he is on the downside of his career he's only 30 but it's kind of an old 30 because he started playing so young and it's played in so many matches um and plus you know that hundred million dollar fee he's going to get a nice nice chunk of that good point although i do think that headline came out of certain interviews that i've seen around those uh in fact it was on another podcast that i do we interviewed a professor I'll remember his name in a minute, but he he basically said he thinks we'll see the first hundred million pound transfer, hundred million euro transfer 
uh, in the next few windows purely because of the way that China is spending and the way that, you know, if you valued Oscar at whatever it is, 75, mm-hmm. uh, you know, imagine what you uh, value some of the other players. At. I mean, you know, if you value yeah. to share at 53 million, that's yeah. fairly incredible in the first place. So, and I think, I think Wayne Rooney represents this interesting confluence of marketability, prestige, and still some playing ability too. I don't think anybody you and I would talk to would think that Wayne Rooney is a hundred million dollar player, not even close, but in terms of the prestige that he would bring to China and the overall uh, attraction that he would make the CSL seem like he might be worth the hundred million dollar investment for that league or for the team that gets him. I'm really conflicted over a fast investment and sort of bubble like, especially considering that I've heard the way that, you know, it's a government driven sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. it almost seems like a policy kind of thing. You wonder, you know, does the change of government completely change the way the league is structured? Does it change the way the league spends? All these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, where that money comes from, how it comes from. Although I imagine that they maybe do the same thing in China. Maybe they sort of say, uh, you know, rampant capitalism is causing the Premier League to collapse right now and we're just helping them out. Yeah, who knows? Uh, I think mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about this is that China has those very stringent rules about foreign players. Each team can only have five foreign players and one of them still has to be from the Asian Confederation. So it's going to end up being this huge divide on the rosters between the Chinese players who are making kind of reasonable Chinese league wages and then the five people that drive away in their Lamborghinis after each training session. Yeah, Uh, which is pretty incredible. I mean, you know, China's apparently very focused on status right now, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. You know, let's see if the states of where I'm, I imagine there's a lot of agents right now with the uh, subject line on any email in their inbox being bloodline. I think the other thing that makes Wayne Rooney interesting is that he's not good enough that a team I've would act. Mm, yeah, he's not good enough that a team would actually actively fight off a hundred million dollar bid for him. Like if a Chinese, <laughs> so if Chinese, if a Chinese team came in for. Zlatan, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Thomas Mueller, one of these players that are still an elite player at a club that has the resources, they're not going to get them. Um, or they're, it's unlikely that they'll get them because those players can still kind of parlay that interest into a move to other teams in Europe. Rooney can't do that. If Rooney goes around to the rest of the teams in Europe and kind of goes, you know, China's got this $100 million bid for me. Maybe you guys can come up with $70 million. No, we cannot come up with $70 million for you. Absolutely not. So yeah. he's, he's right in that kind of gap between credible and good on the field where China could actually get him and get some notoriety from that move, I think. I mean, I think it will also be interesting to see where, where we move when sponsors sort of buy into that Chinese side of things and are allowed in, if mm. you like. Yeah, um, you know, because a huge part of staying here for Ronaldo is going to be his visibility and therefore his Nike deal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and other things like that. If you're in Europe, you're in where the media is centered. Um, you know, you are where your families are. I think a lot of the things, you know, we're just talking about money. It's a, it's a completely different culture. Mm. You know, you're not going, you're, it's not like going to Portugal. It's not like going to Spain. Yeah. It's, you know, this is, you know, at least when I go to Spain, I'm like, right, well, I see a lot of common things here that I can understand, <laughs> you know. If you go to China, there are, you know, the cultural references are completely different. Mm. Yeah, that's, so, that's a good point. you know, imagine what, that, what that's like, especially for a Brazilian player or, you know, someone like that. It's fascinating to think about how different your life's going to be. I literally cannot imagine how different it is. I've never been to China. Uh, let's talk about the... You've got to re- meet Chinese Farley. Mm. There's a I'd, guy I'd out there not. right now who's I'd rather not. He's, he wants to make CPL talk. Yeah, that guy sounds annoying. I'm going to pass on that. Let's yeah, talk about... he's probably got his own Twitter about his uh, DVR or something. I don't 
<laughs> Let's talk about the big headline that surfaced over the last couple of days. Thanks to sources telling reporters at The Guardian and The Independent that the move for Mourinho might be accelerated at Manchester United. We even have news out of Italy that Massimo Moratti's sister, Betty, has heard yeah. that Mourinho is going to be in Manchester and that's probably part of the reason that Inter isn't a big player for the special one services. Okay, Lawrence, let's compare where we are now to the to the rumors, the news that was coming out in December about Louis van Gaal's imminent departure. How much more credible do you think the last two days worth of reports are compared to that storm of speculation? I don't really know what qualifies them more. I guess it's down to someone actually saying, you know, oh, he's going to Manchester United, you know, an actual... Mm-hmm. what you regard as a legitimate source because you imagine it's an overheard conversation or something. I mean, what else, why else would someone like that say, oh, Mourinho's going there? You know, it's, it true. seems like a fairly nebulous, weird comment. You don't really count that as a source, though, do you? You know, someone's sister. Yeah, because it you seems like she was, a, she was sort of, you know, I mean, it turns out that people in uh, high places in Italy get overheard saying all sorts of crap. The, the point would be with, with this one is that, you know, maybe Manchester United is sort of courting it a little bit more. Everyone just everyone just wants it to happen because it's Pep versus Mourinho, isn't That's, it? It'd be perfect. That is the only reason I want it to happen. Uh, Lawrence, let's shift gears. Last thing we'll talk about before taking a break. We'll talk about the upcoming Champions League matchups. On Tuesday, Arsenal versus Barcelona. This is the one draw that Arsenal didn't want, but which means, of course, in the round of 16, they're going to get it. Barcelona hasn't actually lost a match since October 2nd. 32 matches in a row. They've either won or draw. Uh, they've got their lead in Spain. That's starting to look a little bit more like the German title race where Bayern is in control there. Uh, they During that 32-match stretch, we've seen them win 4-0 at, at Real Madrid. I, I, I guess I don't know what else to say besides, obviously, Arsenal are underdogs here. Yeah, massively so. Although, um, you'd say that you know, we've seen some pretty incredible results from Arsenal in the past in the Champions League. Yeah, absolutely. Real Madrid being one, Bayern Munich. Just uh, was that last season or the season before? I can't um, remember. Maybe it's even two or three years now where they came so close to knocking them out. And then even the year before that, I believe, is when uh, they went to the Camp Nou and almost got a late away goal that would have knocked out Barcelona. So sometimes I think we exaggerate the gap between these teams at this level. Clearly, Barcelona yeah. is a favorite here, but Arsenal isn't so such a poor team that they don't have a shot. I almost think that I remember you saying that almost two years ago on this podcast. <laughs> the same, um, exact same thing. Almost, yeah. Sort of like, oh, we, you know, we don't have a scale to actually measure these two on in that sense. Yeah. Um, you know, we've also not seen Barcelona compete uh, again. You know, against the likes of a, a Champions League X side and a Champions League tie. Mm-hmm. Can't really consider that four 0 mauling of Real Madrid uh, a, a notable game <laughs> because they weren't they weren't really playing opposition who even wanted to be there. In in the dynamics of just a one one off league game are so much different than a one hundred and eighty minute Champions League tie. Yeah, and but also it's it's kind of the inferiority complex that I think a lot of people worry that Wenger would have, mm. which I don't believe exists. But it's it, you know it's also that you know when they held by Munich, they then got mauled on the opposite uh, yeah. results. So. You know, there's a lot of variables here which basically make it very difficult to judge. I think a lot of it is dependent on who they play at centre-back and then central defensive midfield um, and whether basically they can cope with the movement of Luis Suarez. Mm. If they can't, then, you know, the tie's beyond them because, 
I mean, you know, look at him and look at his form at the moment. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody can cope with the movement of Luis Suarez, especially when he's being set up by Neymar and uh, Lionel Messi. But but good luck to Arsenal. It'll be it'll take an incredible effort if that happens, and I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to see Lauren Koscielny really put forth an effort that can shut down Luis Suarez over 90 minutes because that would be an incredible defensive display. Um, yeah. The the other thing of note here is that Barcelona they won this weekend at Granada and they played mostly their first team players. I think the only player that started uh, this weekend who maybe won't start at the Emirates was Arda Turan. I think they'll uh, probably drop him to the bench and go with their regular midfield of uh, Iniesta, Rakitic, and Busquets. But Arda Turan is obviously a very good player and is probably uh, going to play in both legs of this tie. Um, Tuesday, we won't talk about this one too much, but I think a lot of the continent is going to be looking at Juventus and Bayern Munich here. Juventus have won 13 of their last 14 matches. They've surged to catch Napoli at the, at the top of the city, uh, even though they had that very poor start to the season. Uh, since August, since that poor start of the season, they've gone 27-5-3. and Juventus really is one of the best teams in Europe right now, and a lot of people that think that Bayern is one of the top two teams in Europe too. This is this is a great matchup. Yeah, great matchup. But again, when uh, they've been tactically faced up with someone who's intelligent enough to shut down certain areas for Munich, I mean, I think the last mm-hmm. person who they really, the, the last team that they really faced that uh, gave them any sort of challenge would have been, is it Leverkusen? Yeah, I think it's Leverkusen, isn't it? Yeah, two weeks um, ago they were held. And, uh, and Schmidt obviously was is considered to be such a challenge for Guardiola in that league. Mm-hmm. And you'd say that another manager, if, he's capable of reading a match like that, which Allegri definitely is, mm-hmm. is going to take that as somewhat of a case study to shut down the other team. Yeah, um, and then, you know, when you come up against the explosiveness of a Dybala or a Pogba right now, who are so central and so brilliant and so dynamic within that team, it's going to be so interesting to see what Pep does against them. You ring something kind of in my head. I mean, there's a bunch of noises going on in my head at all times, but I think you've rang a particular bell here because the Leverkusen example is informative in that if you have a bunch of players that are very energetic, very high up the field, you can disrupt Bayern Munich and kind of keep them out of that, I don't know, sometimes even boring tempo that they just kind of always maintain. I mean, it's skillful and it's admirable how much of the ball they can maintain, but if you can disrupt them early, uh, sometimes you can stifle them a bit. But Juventus doesn't really play that way. That's the thing. So that'll be interesting to see how much of that energetic style that Roger Schmidt has Max Allegri is really willing to implement are we going to see people like Diabla and Mandzukic running their ass off for 90 minutes and if so how much of a difference will that make I think that'll be very interesting on Wednesday PSV is hosting Atletico but for fans of this podcast that's going to be overshadowed by Dinimo Kiev versus Manchester City Manchester City getting a decent draw here but still they have to travel that huge distance from Manchester to Kiev Kiev is tied for first place in the Ukrainian Premier League. Um, and they're a team that's also kind of trimmed down their squad over the break. They've loaned out Yunus Belhanda and Artem Kravets during the January window. Two very good players that just uh, were no longer holding regular spots in the team. Ultimately, though, Lawrence, I think this is going to be a test of Manchester City's focus. They obviously ducked out of the FA Cup this weekend in order to make this match a priority. A lot of pressure on this team, given where they are in the league, and also the fact that Pellegrini is in his last months in Manchester, and this is really the one thing that hasn't happened for the team, is to make significant progress in Champions League under his watch. I think it's just going to be a matter of how focused and how serious that veteran City squad takes this match. And and how... How Man City actually view the way that they're progressing at the moment and 
you know, I, I wonder how many of those side are going to see this as somewhat of a shop window for where they're going to be elsewhere next season. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be back on Wednesday. Myself and Kartik Krishnan are going to be looking back at the midweek results for English teams, for for every team in Champions League. We're also going to preview the Europa League, where three English teams are going to be in action in their second legs of the round of 32 ties on Thursday. For now, though, we're going to take our break. When we come back, we'll update you on what's going on on the continent. Lawrence and I will substitute our Premier League top fours with our Europe top fives. And we'll also hear from Kartik Krishnan, who I talked to on Thursday, as he projected out the remaining matches in the Premier League season. We'll talk to him about how that ended up. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the music. But now let's get you up to date on the other leagues we've been following all season. And let's start in Germany. We talked about Bayern Munich a little last segment. They're a team that has struggled to find its peak form after Germany's winter break. But on Saturday, Pep Guardiola's team inched a little bit closer to their stride, getting two goals from Thomas Müller and another from Robert Lewandowski in a 3-1 win over Darmstadt, a game in which the Bavarians held 81% of the ball. Early on Sunday, Borussia Dortmund got a second-half goal from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to take a 1-0 win at Bayer Leverkusen, a place where Bayern dropped points a few weeks ago. The headline in this one, though, came after Aubameyang's 64th-minute goal, with the referees pulling both teams off the field at Bayer Arena when Bayer head coach Rohit Schmidt refused to leave the team's bench. Schmidt was irate, believing a foul should have been whistled against Dortmund before they broke for that goal. He was ejected, refused to leave the field, and eventually caused the game to be stopped for eight minutes. Teams came back on the field after that. Roker Schmidt did not. Bayern Munich remains first in Germany, eight points ahead of Dortmund, who are 15 points clear of third place Hertha. Leverkusen, Gladbach, Schalke, and Mainz are all within a game of third place. Let's move over to Spain. Barcelona's starting to open up their own Bayern-esque gap on the field. Midweek, the defending champions made up their match in hand they've held since the Club World Cup with a victory at Sporting Gijón, moving them six clear of second place Atletico. They helped lengthen that gap this weekend with a 2-1 win at Las Palmas, while Atletico faced a much tougher obstacle, a home meeting against fourth place Villarreal on Sunday. Perhaps predictably, two very good defensive teams ended nil-nil. Atletico is now eight points back of the top. Elsewhere, Real Madrid dropped points to a team that normally gives Barcelona trouble, Malaga. Defender Raul Albentosa equalized in the second half and left the teams drawn 1-1. And Gary Neville, in peril a week ago, saw his team, Valencia, claim its third straight win with a 2-1 result at Granada. Los Che are now unbeaten in four and they're back in the top half of La Liga's table. Lawrence, we normally do our Premier League top fours at this point in the show, but uh, since the Premier League has been off for a week now, really isn't very much reason for us to shuffle our list. Why don't we instead, with Champions League heating up, focus on Europe, UEFA, I, I guess the world in a way, but uh, UEFA-wide. Let's, let's do something we haven't done in a couple months. Let's list our... European top fives. Uh, I'll go ahead and go first on this one. I'm going to go first by listening, listing some teams that didn't make my top five that I considered. Uh, Leicester, I certainly considered. It's difficult to gauge them since they're not in European competition. You just don't have that bigger data set. And you don't have those um, more varied atmospheres to judge them in. I didn't include PSG. They were very close. And I didn't include Real Madrid here either. I don't think they've been playing spectacularly under Zinedine Zidane. Um, even their result at Roma last week, I think, kind of exaggerated the quality of their play. Uh, number five on my list is Borussia Dortmund. Um, I think they're obviously playing very well. I think the fact that they got three points at Bayer Leverkusen, where Bayern did not, kind of shows you how good they actually are. Number four, Juventus. 
really struggle to not put them higher. I still have Atletico number three. I think if Atletico wasn't in the same league as Barcelona, we'd be talking about them a lot more. Uh, number two, Bayern Munich. And then number one, I think I think Barcelona is head and shoulders the best team in the world right now. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I really disagree that much with that. It's also in terms of how, how watchable a side is as well, isn't it? You factor that in? Well, I get, you know, when I say watchable, I mean what you take away from that team. And what I found interesting is especially with the sort of, you know, a lot of people speaking about Mourinho coming in at Manchester United, and I've listened to a lot of Manchester United fans over the last week. It's been interesting to see how they've sort of justified or wrestled with or looked at the idea that a team might play, not boring football, but sort of football that in the past maybe they've derided right. or have sort of, um, you know, not been so positive about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more, again, it's about the perspective of whoever's watching it. And I think, you know, you can find a nil-nil really fascinating if you watch it from the right perspective yeah um i do think that tv to some extent filters how interesting we find a display because you know you're not watching a full pitch and that's part of that gary neville thing which i think is quite interesting uh he sort of says you know for the first couple of minutes when he's watching and he has the benefit of sky you know not just in his house but sort of every screen he wants Uh um he watches the full pitch you know he doesn't just watch what we see at home he watches you know almost blimp cam if you like yeah, um, that is so crucial when you're trying to figure out how a team is actually playing. You need to look at how those 10 outfield players are adjusting to each other's movements, particularly without the ball when they're playing defensively. And, yeah. and we just can't get a full idea of that based on the angles we see on television. And it's amazing how forgiving you'll be to someone when uh, you realize that you might have to watch that kind of football mm. uh, in the very near future. So the kind of, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that in a hypocritical sense. I think it, no, no one wants their team to play particularly defensive football if they believe that something better exists and they've invested a lot of money. But I do think Manchester United uh, are going to go through that again with the kind of, well, you know, Sir Alex didn't always play the most interesting football, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, the best teams don't always do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, a lot of Manchester United fans you talk to will say like the last four or five years of Alex Ferguson was pretty crap as far as the product is concerned. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely, I think every fan is as bad or as good at uh, rewriting their own history <laughs> Um, as the rest of them, you know, Liverpool fans have done it since the early 90s. Yeah, very um, true. And, you know, the, the difference is that there's not, <laughs> because every new generation comes in and doesn't necessarily see the mistakes of the previous one, you know, we don't, we don't always, you know, like the young guys make exactly the same excuses because all you want to do is watch your team win. Yeah. Kartik and I talked about this a couple of uh, weeks ago on the show about how much we like watching Atletico play because yeah. defensively they are amazing and the effort that the players put out is really second to none as far as any top uh, top shelf team in Europe. But I think the general consensus is that Ad- Atletico is not a good team to watch play. And in the same way, I've never had a problem watching Mourinho's teams play. I mean, granted particularly on the road in the Premier League when his teams are on top of the table, if they get an early goal, then the games do become very boring because Mourinho can coach his teams to where that early goal becomes insurmountable most of the time. Other than that, though, I I don't think Mourinho's teams are any appreciably worse to watch than most of the teams we're apt to see on a given weekend. And I also think, you know, down to the way that the manager pitches that as well, I do think that's where personality comes into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, Klopp has had a lot of goodwill towards him, but his personality... It's been hugely influential on how they've termed his early Liverpool results. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and people have leveled at previous managers, maybe a Brendan Rodgers or maybe a, a you know, Rafa Benitez at Real Madrid. You know, your team's not playing the kind of football. Some of them don't crumble under that. They just don't give the right psychological answer. Yeah. And, you know, I do think Klopp's very good at sort of turning around and saying, 
well, you know, you're being negative. And he didn't even say that. He didn't even blame someone else. He literally just says, no, we're learning. Mm. You know, uh, he's not above it. He's not beneath it. It's just got a very sort of outsider perspective. So I find it interesting. And maybe that affects how we view Sam Allardyce or Tony Pulis. They're at times apt to come off as defensive, a little bit truculent, um, sometimes feeling like they don't have to explain themselves or um, maybe they maybe they get questions that are a little bit more critical than other managers do because of just the perception or the, the vibe that they give off. And uh, maybe that does affect how we describe their tactics compared to somebody who might be a little bit more jovial. Charismatic. Mm. Let's take a trip down to the championship. There's been a change in the top two, though that has much as much to do with FA Cup scheduling as results on the field. With Middlesbrough off this weekend, their visit from Reading having been postponed, Burnley climbed into second place thanks to a 2-0 win over Rotherham, one that moved Sondage's team within one point of first place hole. Fourth place Brighton had a chance to make a similar climb, but stumbled their five-match unbeaten run ending with a 4-1 humbling at Cardiff City. The Seagulls stay three back at the top with Darby and Sheffield Wednesday swapping spots behind them. Lawrence, when I was writing that up, I was thinking about the show we did with the managers, and it was me and Nipun and Kartik. You, it was midweek, so the timing didn't work out to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah. You and I actually had very similar ratings of the managers, by the way. Yeah. But yeah. Um, when I was doing yeah. this write-up, I was wondering where you and I would put two two managers that are the, the the two managers that are top of the championship right now where we would put Steve Bruce and Sean Dyche on our lists that is interesting isn't it um i think the interesting part is that i think reflexively i think a lot of people would lump Steve Bruce in with Tony Pulis and Sam Allardyce level depending on how you feel about those managers will probably I, don't know if I feel I almost i feel Bruce a little i do too but i think most people would like nuance. Kind of, yeah i think yeah, people would yeah. reflexively do that and i think people would lump Sean Dyche in with like Eddie Howe and Alex Neal yeah, probably so. Um, that I think you'd probably be flawed to do either. But I, I agree. You know how high you can put Steve Bruce on that list? I don't know. I just uh, I, I wish Steve Bruce would work with a somebody that was handling the acquisitions for him, because it seems like every time he gets in the Premier League or gets a Premier League job, he'll have these kind of eight to twelve million dollar buys that really just kind of end up wasting some of his precious money. Like if he had somebody else actually bringing in the players for him, I think that there could be a very good relationship there. Good point. And, uh, you know, he seems like a kind of affable guy. That that maybe is the point, is that, you know, he's top of the championship. Where did he kind of sit in Premier League terms? He did keep quite a few teams up in that time. Didn't seem so awful, but then that is a very different age in football that Steve Bruce went down with his side. Mm-hmm. Even just a couple of years in the Premier League now is a big difference. Yeah, I think it's like he hasn't broken through with some sides that seem like they had the resources or the desire to kind of crack into mid-table safety, whether it be Birmingham, Wigan, or Sunderland. He he really had resources there to to build something or to push on. And even at Wigan, it seemed like he was getting creative and buying more from Central and South America, but it, eventually he moved on from there. Sean Dyche, on the other hand, was, you know, when Burnley was in the Premier League, was advertised very much the way Eddie Howe was at the beginning of this year as, oh, here's here's a young manager and this is the future of the profession. And ultimately, Burnley still went down. So you're all wrong. It's based, it is a you know it is a results based business. I think we have, I thought a lot about that when we were rating the managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it was about it's about a mixture of it's practical and uh, sort of theoretical, isn't it? Mixing the two, and some managers get that very right. Some managers get that very wrong. Lawrence, we're going to get to Kartik's recording, the break, yeah, the breakdown of how he sees the Premier League playing out from now through April. But first, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the other things that you've been doing on the side. Uh, I think that God, you found out. 
<laughs> yeah, I just found out about these right now, Lawrence. Uh, <laughs> during our break, this is all we talked about. What other things that you've been doing? Uh, I think people know at this point that Kartik, in addition to writing for World Soccer Talk, uh, also writes about Manchester City for Bitter and Blue, and then he also writes content for About.com. Um, people don't know what else I'm doing because I'm not really doing anything else at this point. Uh, but Lawrence, I caught one of your front three podcasts that you also do video for on YouTube, and I thought it was very interesting. And I, I think that um, I hope most people listening to the show know about that. But can you explain what front three is for people that aren't aware of what you guys are doing? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been around doing this for quite some time now. Kind of started out doing video stuff. We started. I started this in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, kind of like you know, low budget uh, following of the Canadian side at the Gold Cup at the time. I met Kartik and sort of got into uh, that in Miami and uh, then started doing the podcast and then started to get invited onto shows. And then one day Marcus from Football Rumble said to me, look, I'm doing this new video thing. Why don't you come along and be a pundit on it? And I met uh, two other guys through that who work for Squawker, which is kind of a stats agency. One's called Dave and he does Squawk um, and stats and then Adam Boltwood, who originally ran a channel called Football Daily on YouTube, and mm. that was very successful. And then we sort of became friends through that. And we enjoyed talking about football so much and partly enjoyed the in- independence of being able to have our own voice. Um, P- partly and I enjoyed said, that. But, but at the same time, you know, I, I, just, uh, I just left World Soccer Talk and mm. was kind of like, right, I still in- really love doing podcasting and um, was looking to do more content creation. And so started to go out there and feel people out. And we kind of came up with this front three idea and uh, launched it as a podcast. And, you know, it's only got a few thousand listeners a week, but, you know, that's the start. And then launched this YouTube channel. And the whole idea behind the YouTube channel is there's a lot of people who do Skype, things like you and I do and a lot of other people. And we what I was really interested in was when we explore the tactical ideas, sometimes it's difficult to explain those or, you know, you I want to see something to go along it. You know, when we're having a conversation I think everyone's mind sort of cooks up different visuals in there. Yeah. Um, and you know that. So we started this YouTube channel, and it's called the Front Three. Now I may have put you off from that long rambling description, but it's basically somewhere between. You know, we have quite a young audience at the moment, but they seem very intelligent and kind of ask very intelligent questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just kind of address tactical things in football because I, I don't know how well that's being um, sort of expressed to a lot of the fans right now. So it's it's just YouTube. You go, you go and type in the Front Three. And it comes out, it's the numeral three. Mm. So it's sort of, it's really interesting. And we do previews and all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, I, I love YouTube. It does, who doesn't? Well, the whole reason I brought this up is I caught the preview that you guys did for Chelsea PSG, the first leg. I thought it was very good. Uh, the integration of the graphics was very good. And it made me a little bit jealous because we had a midweek podcast two weeks ago before the last round of the Premier League where we had those two great matchups, Arsenal, Leicester, Man City, Tottenham. And Nipun and I had this really great discussion, I thought. But when you listen to a podcast and you're trying to do tactics, it's difficult just because of the two-dimensionality of it. And so I thought you guys did a really good job as you were going through the formations and the lineups for PSG and Chelsea of really in, uh, harnessing the power of a video display and not just having, you know, four talking heads sitting in their boxes, really walking people through the visual of it. I thought it was really good. And I want to encourage everybody else to go out and watch it. I mean, Richard, you know, I think the main part for me was I love the freedom of not having someone sort of above me to kind of go, yeah, we'll do that or we won't do that. And more and more, you know, the higher up you get in any job, more you get your say but a lot of my job is working with a lot of companies is to try and come up with creative ways to 
visualize things because mm-hmm. um, in my day today I do video. So uh, the the mo- most interesting part was that I pitched this to another company and they sort of went, oh, I don't really see it, you know, and that's fine. You know, I don't mind if people don't get the same idea. So we went and did it um, and it was there's something really fun about sort of when, you know, you do something and then a load of people go, oh, this actually looks really cool. Let's do more of that, you know? <laughs> so um, it's actually re- it, what it is for me. And I think the same with, you know, I love having these conversations on Sunday with you. It's a really good way of sort of exploring ideas, which I don't know if you can get that on many corporate podcasts because they have to be almost a finished article, if you like. Yeah, yep. I know what you mean about that. Lawrence, let's talk about Kartik's projections. Now, he told us about this project during the last podcast. What he was going to do is take the f- top four teams in the league and go week by week, consider who they're playing, what their challenges are around those fixtures as far as FA Cup, League Cup, Champions League, Europa League is concerned, and mm. really consider the circumstances of each of the fixtures and trying to predict who would win the Premier League. Now, I know you were interested in how he would project Liverpool season. He didn't do that, although I did get the strong indication that Kartik feels Liverpool is going to finish fifth in the league this year. I don't know if you saw the results. Um, this is not spoiling it for anybody to list these results because we list them very early in the recording I'm about to play for you. But he has Leicester just barely inching out the title, uh, one point ahead of both Tottenham and Arsenal, and then Manchester City falling off the pace and I believe finishing nine points back. And what's your gut reaction to that? Do you think he factored in the FA Cup things? Well, he he did, I think, as much as he could. I think he assumed that Arsenal would go through without needing a replay. I think he assumed that Manchester City would go out because they were playing a second-strength team. Uh, I didn't ask him what he would su- assume regarding Spurs. Um, but, of course, Leicester's not in the FA Cup anymore, so it wouldn't matter for them. Uh, but I think, yeah, he, I mean, I think the, he did. That's the interesting side with Leicester, though, isn't it? Is really yeah. they, you know, when I was going through the number of games they have left, Leicester, literally, that doesn't change. It's just 12. Mm. It's just the Premier League. Yeah, and I think that puts Leicester in a unique situation where you're talking about they have only about 60% of the matches that their main competition does. They're facing no two-match weeks between now and the end of the season unless some of their fixtures get rescheduled for um, these other teams that have two-match weeks going farther in their competitions. But as we're going to hear from Kartik right now, he actually set a very high bar for Leicester, and he admits that in a way, he was trying to figure out a way where Leicester would not win the Premier League this season. So here's a conversation I had with Kartik on Thursday. I went in with a preconceived notion, I'm going to admit this on air, that I needed to figure out a way for Leicester not to win the title. Because I, I, I've talked up Leicester the last several weeks on the pod and put them top of my top of my top four so that we do every week. But uh-huh. I came in and thinking, okay, let's look at this this uh, fixture list objectively. Let's um, have maybe even a little bit of a higher threshold for what Leicester has to achieve versus the other three, just based on what we perceive as the talent level of the side, mm-hmm. what we perceive as the pedigree of the club. And I still ended up with Leicester as the champions, albeit by a single point. Which indicates, and I'm admitting to you, there's some preconceived bias on this. Perhaps they win the title by more than that. But but I went through the exercise, I went every fixture, and I've got Leicester winning the title. That having been said, this was done before the Wayne Rooney injury, and I know that there will be more injuries to come and circumstances that change the the, the sides that each team is playing. Uh, Manchester United happens to be the one team, I believe, at least one prominent team that all four of the the title contenders still face. As we go through these teams, I am going to mention some of the places where Kartik either sees them slipping or getting some results that might stand out a little bit, and we're going to go through them four to one. And fourth place, 
Kartik had Manchester City with 66 points, uh, which ends up being quite a bit back of the other three. We'll talk about that first. Spurs in third place, 74 points. Arsenal second place with 74 points. And then Leicester winning the league with 75 points, which... I, I guess I should correct you in that I did it, uh, I put them in alphabetical order for oh, second okay. and third, but Spurs are so, what, they're plus yeah, nine, the, I think, on Arsenal They'll right end now. up so being probably, in second place. They probably finished second. Yeah, so um, second, second and third, even on points, it'll come down to goal difference between the North London teams then. Uh, Leicester, you have finishing first, even with the handicap that you said that you gave them. And when we go down Leicester's results, you did give them a couple of draws that are pretty easy to see them turning around into wins, but we'll talk about that. First, let's talk about Manchester City. I was a little surprised, Kartik, when it came to your results. They end up finishing nine points back of Leicester City. Um how do you think that happens, that they end up falling off to being kind of a non-contender? few things here. I think they've got a League Cup final against Liverpool that they're taking very seriously. And whether they, If they lose that, uh, they might uh, go into the tank completely. If they win that, they've got their trophy for the season with the coaching change coming. The second factor for them is European play, where they um, should get beat by Dinamo Kiev. And the more I think about this Champions League, I think Manchester City could make a run. Really? I, I, just, I, I just have this sense that Look, I, I think there, there's some real question marks about Bayern and some of the injuries Bayern has, particularly in defense. Yeah, they have Real, not been playing well since the winter right. break. No, and Real Madrid has not impressed me uh, under Zidane, mm-hmm. and they did not impress me against Roma. They're not, impressing, they're not impressing Real Madrid fans either. No, and Barcelona will win the Champions League. But uh, I could see Manchester City, if they avoid Barcelona, given the Jekyll and Hyde nature. They seem to get up for certain games, and then they just mail it in for others. If they smell European success... And this is a parting gift to Manuel Pellegrini. I, I get the sense that we might see see a run. So that, I factored that in, that thinking Manchester City is going to be around for at least the quarterfinals, maybe the semifinals of Europe, and that they're going to have these two weeks with a team that we've seen is not very deep, a team that we've seen now that you've got Navas and De Bruyne out of the team. Oh, and Bobby and Delph is out for six weeks. You, they just don't have any options. They were only able to bring two guys off the bench against Spurs. Yeah, let's talk about the Champions League a little bit more. You mentioned they're up against Dinamo Kiev, a perfectly capable team, but also a team that uh, saw a player like Yunus Belhanda move in the winter window, and another prominent player uh, moved in the window that I'm also forgetting. It wouldn't be the biggest upset ever if Kiev beats Manchester City, but City looks like a favorite to go through. If they end up getting a team like, you know, Zenit St. Petersburg, Wolfsburg, Benfica in the next round, that'd be another fortunate draw. Do you think that the attitude at the club would permit Manuel Pellegrini to start diverting resources from the league to concentrate on Champions League? As long as he stays in the top four. And Manchester City have basically gone win, loss, win, draw, win, loss since September and have stayed in the top four. And Manchester United, with the injury to Rooney, now seem like they will not be able to make a run at Manchester City in fourth place. You have to think that at some point Southampton, Southampton's been on a great run to get themselves in position to, to make a move uh, to, to, to push into the Champions League spots. But you have to you have to think Ronald Koeman's team is going to peter out and finish sixth or seventh like they have the last few seasons. So they look, they look relatively safe. I mean, the one concern I would have still is about Liverpool – but there's nine points or ten points between Liverpool and, and Manchester City. I, I just get the sense that they're going to get it going under Klopp towards the end of the season, even if it, it means they're, they're jumping from eighth in the table to sixth and uh, have a Europa League run. I just have a sense they're going to get it going. 
They're the one team who I could see conceivably catching Manchester City. I just don't see Manchester United doing it now, especially no. with the news of Rooney being out. Uh, some of the results that you have for Manchester City throughout the rest of the season, you have three losses for them at Liverpool. That makes sense based on what Liverpool did to Manchester City at the Etihad. You have them losing at Bournemouth and at Chelsea. Those are two matches that I think Kartik... Uh, Staunch City performers might raise an eyebrow to because even though those matches are on the road, they're against what the table tells us is vastly inferior opposition. The thing that we found with this Premier League season, though, is that there there are very few predictable results, right? <laughs> their vastly inferior opposition is just a perception, is a term. The one yeah. thing that's been consistent is Manchester City have not been able to get results against teams around them in the table, be it Leicester, they got one draw against Leicester, uh, lost the other game, uh, Spurs uh, Spurs did the double on them, uh, West Ham, uh, they only got a point against West Ham, and who else is up there in the table? Uh, Southampton. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess they've gotten results against Southampton, but generally like Spurs and, and, and uh, Leicester have made Manchester City look silly, the top two teams in the league. So that's, I think, for City it's a concern that they can't beat teams around them, but for the rest of the... The, the, the pack, I think it's one of these things where they could they could lose to anyone. I mean, again, so that's why projecting this this season, going fixture by fixture, was so much more difficult than it would have been if I had done it. Uh, there was no need to do it last season. Uh, the season before, I could have done it, actually, given that Arsenal were leading uh, for much of the season and that Liverpool came on strong and eventually took the lead and, and City beat them out, and the whole time Chelsea was in the top three. So that could have been a season to do it, and, and maybe we would have had much more predictable results we might not have predicted the drop of points by liverpool at crystal palace mm-hmm. we might not have predicted the drop of points by chelsea to sunderland at home but otherwise we probably would have been more accurate than i'm guessing i would i'm going to be this season you also have them and this plays exactly into what you were just saying you have them drawing at home against manchester united who you made this prediction before wayne rooney was out for a couple months and that that derby is going to come during that window, and you have them drawing at home versus Arsenal. Um, just a reflection of City's quality right now, or is there something about those matchups that make you think that City's not going to be able to get full points at home? City has not outplayed Arsenal in the game since 2011, I would say, and City has not won a game against Arsenal since early in the in the 2012-13 season, a game which uh, City was outplayed in, but. Actually, no, excuse me. I think that was in the 11-12 season. Yeah, Manchester City has had all these difficulties against uh, against Arsenal. Oh, there was the one game City did beat, against, beat Arsenal was in the 12-13 season when Arsenal was reduced to 10 men inside of the first five minutes of the game. So, uh, yeah, City has not cleanly beaten Arsenal in the game since 2010 or 2011. Wow. So it's a, it's a bogey team, and it's been a consistent bugaboo that Manchester City can't beat Arsenal even at home. And we saw what happened last season when they played them at home. And everyone thought there was this great Arsenal revolution because they won that game against Manchester City. Remember that? And Coughlin played this role, and mm-hmm. and they, they hit him on the break and beat him 2-0. And yet Manchester City still finished out of Arsenal on the table. <laughs> even though Arsenal got, got ahead of them for several weeks there. So um, that's the Arsenal c- scenario. Hmm. The Manchester United scenario... I must say, has has now changed since Rooney's been injured. Because if there's one game that Rooney consistently gets up for, besides Liverpool, obviously he always gets up for Liverpool, it is the Manchester City matchup. He scored that wonderful goal in 2011 against Manchester City. He has always played well against Manchester City. I think uh, a a Rooney-less Manchester United doesn't quite have the fight, the spirit, 
for that derby because it's essentially a club of mercenaries. Now, I know there's a criticism that Manchester City is a club of mercenaries also, but Manchester City, if they're mercenaries, they're mercenaries that have been with the club five or six years who all understand the relevance of taking on Manchester United. Uh, if, if, if you don't believe me, just watch Kun Aguero, the way he reacts to scoring against Manchester United. Just look at the way even Nasri, who, who's injured now, but maybe he'll be back for that game, uh, how he reacts when he plays against Manchester United. Manchester City players, even if they were high-priced foreign signings, they may not have realized it in 2010 and 2011 when they played Manchester United. But by the time we got to 2013, 14, 15, they knew what that rivalry meant. So I actually now think in, that City's going to win that game. It just I made that prediction before Rooney was injured. Well, by your prediction, again, before Rooney got injured, you have them on 66 points, nine points off of the uh, title at the end of the year, which might sound harsh to some City fans, but it's pretty much the pace that City is on right now. Uh, the 19 points over the next 12 rounds, a little bit short of two points per match. City only has 47 points through 26 rounds at this point, short of two points per match. They're six points back at the top right now. You project that out over the next 12 rounds, it comes out to close to nine points gap. So basically you're just saying that Manchester City is going to maintain the same pace that they have throughout the year. Now, as far as the other teams, you are projecting a little bit more of a title push. Tottenham is the next one we're going to talk about here. Uh, one of the things that Tottenham has been hamstrung by during the season is the number of draws. Nine draws, third most in the league. Even one of those draws turning into a win would have them in first place right now. You have them with five draws throughout the rest of the season, Kartik, against London and the North London Derby at White Hart Lane and when they host Manchester United, and then on the road against Liverpool, Stoke City, and Chelsea. Beyond that, what else jumped out to you about Tottenham's... I guess it's too too early to call it a run-in, but it is technically a run-in. So what, what else jumped out to you about their run-in? So defensively, they're very stout. They're very strong. Uh, even this injury now to... Uh, to Vertonghen has not really dented their defense. I was worried that Eric Dyer would be moved back to uh, to midfield, to back to the back line, mm-hmm. uh, but it's actually worked out. And he is a dynamic midfielder. He and Conte are two of the most unique players in the league, right? So the, the way that they played this season, and we'll get to Conte obviously when we get to Leicester. Mm-hmm. But the thing that concerns me still about Spurs is the ability to get goals when they need them, when they're locked in, in, in nil-nils or one-ones. Now, mm. they showed on Sunday against Manchester City they could. Lamella comes on. That's a change of pace. Yeah. Very direct to Erickson. They get a goal. But I'm not sure that the um, that they're going to face many teams that are as... Um, that <laughs> as are willing as, as Nicholas Otamendi is to give them the extra two points. Right, right. Yeah, and I think uh, the combination of Otamendi's poor defending and City having pushed up to try and win the game because it felt like after Ihenaccio's equalizer that if there was going to be a, a, a winner it would be Manchester City mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to face that situation again unless it's that North London derby against Arsenal where Arsenal feels like they need to get three points although to be honest with you Arsenal is not playing like that this season there's this myth that Arsenal may, keeps the ball they create more chances than everyone okay they keep the ball uh, we'll get to them in a minute, but against no. Leicester City, they were outplayed even when they were keeping the ball until yeah. Leicester was out to 10 men. This is so frustrating because we've been talking about this all season. I, I guess it's frustrating from a very selfish perspective because I just expect everybody to listen to our podcast when I, I know that's not true. But all year, we've been highlighting how Arsenal has been dominant in bursts. These bursts of two, three goals at a time over 10, 20-minute stretches. And then the rest of the time, they seem to be on par with their opponents. And we're left asking, is 
Arsenal going to be the team that can extend these 20, 30 minute bursts throughout longer periods of the, the match and claim some of these points where they're dropping? Or are they going to be a team that if you neutralize them for those 20 or 30 minutes that you're going to be able to take points off them? And I think that's probably one of the shames about Danny Simpson's red card, Kartik, is that we never really got a chance for Arsenal to show their burst in that game. And we never got a chance to see if Leicester could, could hold them off. Yeah, maybe the burst uh, would have come in that game. But the way, based on the first 55 minutes, and again, I said this a, a week ago on, on the pod after that game, I had no belief whatsoever watching the first 50, 53, whatever minutes it was before Simpson got sent off, that Arsenal could even get a draw against Leicester, let alone get three points. And I thought Leicester were clearly the better team because you can't just look at possession statistics and shots that really don't test the keeper, which is what Arsenal fans like to do over and over again, cite those types of statistics. They've been doing it for years. I mean, they used to do it. They'd get mm. beat 3-0 by Manchester United back in the day, uh, and, and they'd say, well, we had more of the ball and we created more chances, and hey, it's just Park Ji-sung and Rooney scoring on these counterattacks. No, you got beat. And Leicester was playing their game to a T. Conte was bossing that midfield. Mares, I thought, looked very dangerous on the counter. I thought that Albrighton was playing very well, and then he was taken out of his game after the red card because he had to shift to the other side and was forced to, to, to play more defensively. So we didn't get a good look at Arsenal. They got the three points. They closed the gap uh, to two points. Uh, Leicester's only two points ahead of them. But I, I still have no belief, and I know we've jumped ahead to Arsenal now. We were talking about Spurs. I have no belief that Arsenal was actually a better team than Spurs since we're talking about the two North London teams at this point. Now, the way I played out the results... I made some assumptions thinking Spurs still are inexperienced. They still have a very young core. They may not be able to gut out wins where they're going to, where they're going to get draws against better teams, the likes of uh, Man United, Stoke, Arsenal, mm-hmm. Chelsea, Everton. Mm-hmm. But I, I made some assumptions about Arsenal saying, OK, I, I keep hearing from Arsenal fans that they've got this dynamic team and that Ozil, Sanchez, Ramsey, these are the best players in the Premier League. No one has anyone comparable to them. They basically say that. I mean, Ozil has been amazing this season, but that nobody has comparable players to them uh, in, in this division. You know, Spurs don't have comparable players to them, overlooking the accomplishments of so much of what they've done. But if they don't have those bursts, Richard, and there are games where they don't have those bursts, they're not even going to be in this title yeah. race. There were a lot of them in January, and that's not so far off that we should be forgetting that. But like you said, let's drop back to Tottenham here. Tottenham, we saw, got a 1-1 result at Fiorentina midweek Europa League. That puts them in good stead to go through with the return leg at White Hart Lane coming this Thursday. What impact will Europe have on Spurs' title push? I, I don't think it's a good one. I was actually hoping... And again, I mean, I'm weary of the coefficient, and I don't want England to lose a spot in, in these tournaments. But actually, I was just hoping Spurs would uh, would let Paulo Sousa's team have that and then focus on the league and try and win the title. Mm-hmm. Just from a selfish perspective, knowing how good this Spurs team is and thinking, okay, Europa League had a value last season for Spurs. Uh, they, Spurs have been in Europa League every year, right? This is a, a yeah. usual thing for them. They always make the knockout stages. It had a value last season because they weren't going to finish in the top four. Mm-hmm. But this season, they're going, to be, they're going to be in Champions League next year regardless. And I, I think they're going to be right to the group stages. They're going to finish somewhere between first and third. They're going to finish first, first, second, or third. So I don't know that winning Europa League has any value to them. No, uh, it point. does have value. It does have value in that you win a trophy, but it doesn't have value I, if it takes I, you out of the league. I suppose. I mean, it certainly has value, but... I don't think we all think so much more of Sevilla because they're two-time champions at this point. I mean, it's a tournament. Oh, that's you're, true. That's it's a, a tournament. You in, you're in it. You want to win every tournament that you're in. Uh, sometimes you have to make allowances for 
you know, other competition and fixture congestion like Manuel Pellegrini's going to have to do this weekend. But like you mentioned, Sevilla, part of the bonus of them going for that last year is that they weren't going to finish top four in Spain and they became the fifth Champions League team from La Liga thanks to that tournament. Tottenham's going to be in the top three this year. They're not even going to have to play in that playoff that the English team always wins in order to get into group stage. So maybe some of the incentive wanes a little bit. It is only Europa League and maybe, I don't know, maybe they just have to have to make some tougher choices. Uh, yeah, yeah, like I was saying, I was kind of hoping that game midweek that they would, they would lose badly in Florence and make the decision uh, Pochettino would be pragmatic, play, play even some other youngsters at White Hart Lane, get out of that tournament and focus on really pushing the, uh, putting Arsenal to the sword and, and, and trying to win the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the complication of Europa League, see, the thing that I think a lot of fans of teams that are typically in Champions League, Arsenal fans particularly, because they've never been out of Champions League, right? And they never lose at the group stage. They're always advancing. So they, they're the one team that has no Europa League experience. Uh, of any uh, or UEFA Cup experience of any of these uh, English clubs. What they don't understand is playing Thursday, Sunday is so much more difficult than playing Wednesday, Saturday yeah. or Tuesday, Saturday, because it takes you completely out of your training routine for the week. And that's why I think Arsenal, uh, excuse me, Spurs are at a real disadvantage if they keep going in this tournament. Uh, that having been said, I think Spurs are a better team than Arsenal anyway. So it, maybe, maybe it won't affect them as much as. Uh, as, as it affects Arsenal, because Arsenal is going to be out of Europe after uh, this uh, this round of Champions League. That that much we do know. You mentioned that Spurs are a better team than Arsenal, but in their upcoming North London derby, which I believe is two weeks, two two rounds away, so three weeks away, I believe. So you have that as a draw. I do because again, head to head, maybe they're they don't beat them, and they've had a hard time beating them in in big games which matter we even saw that in the league cup game earlier in the season at white hart lane where spurs lost to arsenal they have a, a mental thing with arsenal when they're head-to-head mm-hmm. and it, this has been going on for a long long time everton has had this mental thing with liverpool for years even when everton has a better team than liverpool they lose to them or they draw them and, and i think we've talked about this on the show before mm-hmm. i think spurs very much have that same mental block with arsenal that having been said, I think if any people who have objectively watched both Spurs and Arsenal when they play other opposition over the course of the last three months, I, I don't know how you could argue Arsenal is better than Spurs. I, I just don't. <laughs> oh, boy. You're going to get some well actuallys in your mention calls where people pick out isolated games and come at you like, well, what about Leicester? Tottenham couldn't beat Leicester, but Arsenal beat Leicester. Just, I think you're av- advocating taking right. a broader It would have been the same result. That. It would have been a 1-0 if... Uh, yeah. If Simpson hadn't been sent off, maybe a three-one to Leicester, it would have been. I, yeah. I think it would be the same result. Yeah, the way Leicester's defending these days, maybe one 0 would have been the answer there. The last thing on Tottenham, uh, you have them with twenty-four points through these last twelve rounds, ending on seventy-five points. There are a couple areas in the team that we've talked about where they're a little bit thin at, and I want to talk to you about what happens if Harry Kane has to miss time, or what happens if they another central defender picks up a knock before Jan Vertonghen is back. How much do you think those injuries will affect Spurs? Do you think it will f- affect Mauricio Pochettino's team a little bit disproportionately than it would affect an Arsenal? If it's a central defense injury, yes, because he has to make a decision then about Dyer. Dyer, as I said earlier, I think has been one of the most unique and, and effective players in England this season, up there with, with the likes of N'Golo Conte and, and, and some of the players, Mesut Ozil, some of the players we've talked about having really, really top uh, seasons. But Dyer is a natural central defender. You know, you always have that option. And then you could stick a Ryan Mason or uh, a player like that, a uh, Bentaleb, uh, uh, Tom Carroll. Tom Carroll's not really a holding player, but he's a guy that you can that can move the ball around quickly. I don't think Pochettino wants to be in that position, though. So 
that would hurt them if Kane were to get injured. I mean, if Kane were to get injured, they'd be in trouble. Yeah, so I mean, and it's easy to say, well, if a good player gets injured, of course you're going to be you're going to be hurt. But if Arsenal loses Olivier Giroud, it's a lot different than Tottenham losing. Uh, well, Her- now Her- that Welbeck's back, now right? Right. Even yeah. So uh, it's it's to it's to say that Tottenham in some specific areas have some depth issues that Arsenal maybe do- doesn't have. Uh, let's go to Arsenal. You have them finishing on the same number of points as Tottenham, seventy five. Uh, they're on the same number of points going into the uh, next round of Premier League matches, fifty one points through twenty six games. I guess just to to beg the question that so many Arsenal fans are going to ask you, I've already asked you. Why so low? <laughs> I don't. I'm. I'm asking myself why so high. Yeah. Why? No. I'll, I'll play the Arsenal because fan I here. What? I haven't seen them. I haven't seen them play like a title-winning team all season. But, but, but what is a title-winning team this year? I, well, that's I, true. That's yeah. a good point. I mean, I'm thinking about the Chelsea's or the the of the past and the Manchester United's, Manchester City's of the past. They haven't looked like that. I thought maybe with this congestion um, mm-hmm. that we saw at the start of January. I, in the back of my mind, I thought Arsenal was going to go on a run like Liverpool did a couple of seasons ago, where Liverpool Liverpool won 11 or 12 straight Premier League games. Do you, do you remember that? Uh, something like that. Yeah, they went over three started. months without losing a match. Right. Uh, I thought we were going to see, see that sort of run from Arsenal. Instead, we see them uh, drawing at home to Southampton, uh, not really doing anything in the game against Stoke, which they drew, uh, getting beat by Chelsea again. Yes, there was a sending off, but they got beat again by Chelsea, a bad Chelsea team. And uh, Leicester was controlling the game before. Uh, oh, and the Bournemouth game, they had the spurt of two minutes where they scored two goals, right, as, mm-hmm. as you talked about earlier. And then we're just kind of pedestrian the rest of the way. Now, maybe there's something to be said for Arsenal's ability to see out games when they get a lead and then they they don't have to wow us the way they used to uh, after they get that league. But there's there's something really missing. There's a cutting edge in this team that's missing, and I think – Maybe Welbeck being back, if he can stay fit, gives them that, that guy to spell Giroud up top. And then you've got the um, ability to, 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 to make some changes in the midfield. Uh, uh, if El Nene mm-hmm. uh, is as good as he's been advertised to be, that maybe you could insert him in, in, in certain s- scenarios. FA Cup's going to be important, too, because Arsenal, they're gonna, it looks like they'll beat Hull, uh, Hull I think, <laughs> at this point. Maybe. Yeah, I think, yeah, well, maybe, because I, I mean, think Hull... Hull at this point is probably going to want to get out of the FA Cup. There, yeah, go, going extra rounds in the FA Cup for Hull City could be more devastating than yeah. Spurs going extra rounds in the Europa League. Hull is top of the t- championship yeah, but it, right it's, now. It's a tightening top four there in the championship. Yeah, and they're gonna they're gonna want to win the championship and get back into the Premier League with this TV money. That's mm-hmm. a big deal. So Good they point. might be the best best thing for them to get out and uh, Steve Bruce focus on promotion and get back to the Premier League. And yeah, that because uh, for a club like Hull, which has now become a yo-yo club. That TV money next season is so important to get mm-hmm. back into the Premier League. So let's say they keep going in the FA Cup. I think that that will continue to, to to create an obstacle for them. Now, they have the opportunity. We haven't talked about this much because we're focused on the league itself to, to create a historical something historically unprecedented if they could win a third FA Cup in yeah. a row. And that's uh, that that would be remarkable. And that maybe in the context of history, that's as good as winning a title. Uh, a Premier League title in the context yeah. of now, de- now it's not. No, that's a really good point because I think it would also offset a lot of the the claims people have had over the last couple of years about how they've won their FA Cup 
their last two FA Cups, be it the draws that they've had, the matchups, the actual performances in yeah. one of the finals, uh, the, which makes this whole city match. Uh, well, even the the semifinals last year against Wigan mm-hmm. when they uh, uh, when they was it Wigan? No, what was it? Who was it? Reading last season? No, it was Wigan two seasons ago when yeah. they then barely beat Hull in the final. They were they got Wigan and then they got Hull in the final and they were fortunate to win either game, quite frankly. Yeah, because a lot of people will point to the semifinal last year because I believe they had Manchester United in the semifinal last year. And the Arsenal fans will point to that and go, well, look, we had to beat Manchester United on the way to last year's title. They beat Aston Villa in the final, and we saw what Sherwood's Aston Villa became even after a good run at the end of last year. And then this Manchester United team, in historical perspective, isn't living up to the Manchester United name. But... If they win three straight titles, the difficult argument of downgrading their accomplishments already will become somewhat impossible. And yeah, in a way, I think that'll end up being the counter to, well, when was the last time Arsene Wenger delivered a Premier League title? Well, he hasn't in a long time, but three straight FA Cups is something to consider, too. That's tough to do. That's really tough to do. Definitely would deserve some credit. Yeah, but so that's the question is the longer they go into the FA Cup, how does it affect their league form? Because we know they have injury problems. We know that they have trouble with two games a week or with uh, uh, and they will have two games a week because this is the last FA Cup fixture date where it's clear. Mm -hmm. So basically you get rescheduled after this point if you keep going. And I think we're in a position where uh, they're going to need to uh, keep their team fit. It's, it's a difficult thing to say because they still have to play out the two legs against Barcelona, right? And you still are obligated to, and we know how Wenger feels about Champions League, you're still obligated to trot out your best team in that game. That's two additional very difficult games mm-hmm. against Barcelona. Then each additional FA Cup round, it's, it's going to take a toll on a team that is very fragile. Right now, they appear to be fit for the first time in a long time. But this is Arsenal. I think we know there are going to be injuries. Are we being too dismissive of their chances to beat Barcelona? That's a loaded question because, <laughs> yeah, we are because Barcelona is the best team. This Barcelona team is one of the best club teams we've we've seen in the last two decades. Mm-hmm. That having been said, the Barcelona team in 2011, which is regarded as Pep's best team, Arsenal should have beaten them in the in yeah. the in the same stage of the Champions League. It was a it was a ridiculous call. Van Persie getting sent off, and then even after that, down to ten men, Nicholas Bettner misses an open net. Mm-hmm. Uh, Valdez is off his line. Uh, they should have won the game. Uh, they should have advanced. So, uh, yeah, maybe we are being too dismissive. Maybe Arsenal can beat Barcelona. I mean, Barcelona never loses at this stage. But, again, when I think back at Barcelona um, being pushed by English clubs, they get pushed more by English clubs than they do by non-English clubs. Even though there's this, this talk that English clubs have fallen way off in Europe, I think Barcelona has had a harder yeah. time getting by the likes of Arsenal and Chelsea than they have uh, getting by anybody else on the continent. So it's possible. Yeah, I guess they could push him. Yeah, Barcelona, I think as a club, has always felt that the English clubs and their physicality present a particular challenge for them. And I wonder if uh, Luis Enrique has done anything to change that uh, since he's gotten on board. I guess we'll find out, although I don't think many people associate Arsenal with physicality. But Kartik, if they do pull the upset... No, but I do think that... Uh... The physicality of Alex Song in those two legs in 2011 mm. sold Barcelona on buying him because he was fantastic over those two legs. Yeah, that's true. Well, Kartik, if they do pull the upset, is that even a good thing for their Premier League aspirations? Because as you mentioned, the farther they go in FA Cup, and you know we are recording this before the fixtures this weekend, and we're assuming that Arsenal gets by Hull, but the farther they go in the FA Cup, the more Premier League fixtures have to be rescheduled for midweek. Champions League plays in midweek too, so you're just extending the amount of time that you're having to play two matches per week if 
they beat Barcelona. Yeah, that's uh, as I said when we talked about Manchester City a few minutes ago. My predictions on Manchester City, I didn't explain this well in the piece. This is why I love being able to come on the podcast and talk about this. A lot of it is based on the assumption that Manchester City beats Dinamo Kiev and then gets someone other than Bayern or Barcelona in the in the quarterfinals. Because, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, I think Manchester City, as poor as they've been in the league, they could beat Real Madrid. They'll push them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And De Bruyne might be back by that point. And, and what we've seen with Manchester City this season is De Bruyne is the most consistently influential player. He isn't the best player. Uh, Aguero is probably the best goal scorer. At times, Sterling is good. At times, Yaya is good. But he's the most consistently influential player in that team, and he's been out now for several weeks. So if he's back for a potential tie against Real Madrid, I think Manchester City have a chance to beat them. Mm. So fixture congestion is a problem for Arsenal and Manchester City. It's got to be a huge positive for Leicester then. Yeah, they just have the league. It's very straightforward. I, As I said at the beginning of our segment, I came in with the preconceived notion that they're going to drop some points we don't expect them to drop, and I built that into my analysis in the article. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so let's go through some of those matches because I want to ask you about these because it now that you explain it, it makes sense that you look at a, a trip to Watford and say, well, that's a place where they could drop some points. You, you look at a trip to Crystal Palace, and like you say in the post, by that time, Palace should be playing better. Uh, a draw versus Southampton at home, well, that could end up being a nil-nil the way that Southampton's defending. You have them losing at Manchester United, drawing at home to Everton, and then drawing at home against Chelsea on the last day of the season, where I believe in that game, all they need is a draw to win the title, so that might be part of your logic there, too. But essentially, you've created a scenario here where Leicester is dropping some points where they very well could win. They could beat Watford at Watford. They could beat Crystal Palace at Palace. And if those things happen, if they defend their home turf against Southampton, this one-point gap and 75 points all of a sudden becomes 81 points and a relatively clear path to the title. Yeah, on that Chelsea game, the last game of the season, uh, match of the season, I made it a draw because they just needed the draw to win the title. Yes, uh, because I had already, obviously, I was updating the table as I went through uh, and knew what the table was going into match day 38. Uh, That having been said, uh, if they if it's a situation where an Arsenal win or a Spurs win would put them above Leicester in the table uh, and Leicester needs to win, I think that they'll get they'll win that game. So it could have been 77. I mean, it just that was just based mm-hmm. on circumstance. Ranieri knowing, OK, if we draw, we're three points clear of Arsenal and Spurs. If we draw, uh, it doesn't matter if they both win their games. We're the champions and, and they'll just they'll they'll play for a nil nil and, and they'll get it. Uh, so that Watford game is an interesting one. That's that's where I really my analysis, my preconceived bias, if you want to call it that, came in, where I said, okay, that's the kind of game where if we're expecting Leicester to grind to a halt, they're going to drop points. Same thing with the Palace game, the Southampton game, same thing. Now, the question is, if if I if Spurs had those fixtures, would I have Spurs going to Watford and drawing? No, I'd probably have them winning. Uh, if I had them playing Southampton at home, I'd probably have them winning. Yet I had. Leicester dropping points in those games, and they still win the title, even with me essentially giving Spurs and Arsenal more credit when they placed certain teams and I, I gave Leicester. So to me, that's pretty telling. Like you said, it's interesting you get to come on and explain this because it does add another dimension to the project that you've taken on. The other thing that you commented on in the post is the fact that 75 points could win the title. Maybe Leicester ends up with 81, maybe they end up with 78, but 75 in the scenario that you've outlined does claim the title. I believe it's the first time in 20 years that that number, such a low number, ends up claiming the title. I believe it was the year where 
uh, Keegan's Newcastle collapsed a bit, and Manchester United claimed the title. That last it was actually time. the following. It was actually the following season after okay. that. Newcastle was also second that season, but <laughs> United had a little bit of a cushion. Okay, uh, on them. So, does that say anything about the league? Uh, I was about to say we can't really say that the league is as wide open as it was back then, but then again, we have a four-team title chase right now, so I'm not sure that my assumption there holds up. I, is there anything we can glean about? anything by this these low point totals maybe producing a champion at this point there are more draws we talked about spurs and all the oh, draws yeah. there are more draws there's uh there there is no dominant team or no two dominant teams mm-hmm. uh, at the same time i don't know that um the middle of the table is necessarily better than it was uh, in in those days what i uh, and by those days i don't mean uh the, the when newcastle was fighting manchester united for titles the league is better than it was then is it better than it was in 06 and 07 and 08 when england was putting three teams four teams in the quarterfinals three teams in the semifinals every year mm-hmm. of champions league uh, is it better than it was eight years ago uh, seven years ago i don't think so what I do think is the bottom three are better. Well, Villa is really bad, but the rest yeah. of the, the, the four teams, the bottom of the table is much better than it was. Mm-hmm. For example, the year Newcastle went down and Hull stayed up, which was the 08-09 season. Yeah. I mean, the bottom of the table was terrible that season. Sunderland would have gone down in most seasons. They were an awful team. Uh, they were uh, Middlesbrough was terrible, and they almost stayed up. They, uh, I think the bottom of the table has gotten better, which is why you could get some some funny results. The one mm. one that really concerned me was Sunderland. So Sunderland plays everybody other than um, I believe they play Spurs. They uh, other than Manchester City, mm. and I I'm, I don't have much. I've given Arsenal a win when they go to. Uh, did I give them a win? No, you have them to, uh, drawing at the stadium. Yeah, light. yeah. I could see them losing that game. I could see um, Leicester. I think I had Leicester maybe drawing Sunderland. I could see them losing that game. Mm. Sunderland concerns me. Norwich is again a tricky team to to. Uh, predict although it just seems like norwich i i think it is what we we see what it is now they're a team that's they they play hard and they have uh bursts but they're not a team that's good enough to to, to stay up uh, but there's a there's a lot of there's an element of doubt when you, you're talking about sunderland newcastle to a lesser extent and certainly uh, i think a significant element of doubt when you're talking about chelsea and playing chelsea because Chelsea has not been a good team this season. They've been one of the worst teams in the league, in my opinion. But we were seeing signs, obviously, the Newcastle game. We saw the comeback against Manchester United. We saw them beat Arsenal again. Mm-hmm. And then we see uh, a performance against PSG. You and Napoon talked about it midweek that I think uh, they were maybe unfortunate not to get a draw out of. They, they yeah. seem to be playing at a, at a higher level now. That having been said... Let's say they do get by PSG. Maybe they're not going to bother with the league at that point. They're not going to get relegated. They're not going to qualify for Europe directly out of elite place. And they, they might be further along in the FA Cup at that point, too, because, uh, again, right, we're recording right. this ahead of time, but they're likely to beat Manchester City on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's another element of doubt. So there are elements of doubt in this prognostication about the team's sides are playing. Crystal Palace might have been the biggest one. I gave Crystal Palace that draw against Leicester with the assumption that Palace will pull out of this funk they're in. Mm-hmm. But this funk they're in is now a two-month funk. Yeah. And it's very typical of Pardue's teams. And it's hard to really, when you think about it objectively, based on what we've seen the last two months, make a case that Crystal Palace could even stay on the same pitch as Leicester. But mm-hmm. I'm making this leap of faith that they're going to get it together, they're going to put in a performance, and they're just going to be some dips for Leicester along the way. 
Thank you very much, everybody, for sticking with us through what's been a slightly longer version of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Took a moment to reflect on a lot of things around the league and, of course, look forward to Champions League action midweek for both Arsenal and Manchester City. Next time you hear from us will be Wednesday night after Arsenal and City have played their first round of 16 legs. Myself and Kartik Krishnayar will be looking back on European competition for Premier League teams and then myself and Nipun Chopra will be previewing the return of the Premier League. But until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, for Lawrence McKenna and Kartik Krishnar, I'm Richard Farley saying enjoy your soccer. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7 Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at worldsoccertalk.com. <laughs>